Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to help primary students find success in a difficult time through engaging lessons and responding to their needs. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Adrian Barber of California. I connected with Adrian when she first published her book, School Coronavirus Do's and Don'ts, which she wrote to help young students feel better about the scary changes happening in their academic lives. Personally, my favorite two pairs of do's and don'ts have to be mute your microphone, but don't mute your cat, and keep in shape, but don't play sports with an alligator. Adrienne has a unique understanding of how kids think, and she cares about them immensely. As we explore in our interview, where we discuss her 20 years teaching primary in a classroom and her one year teaching primary online. Adrienne has adapted tremendously to the challenges of teaching during COVID, which we talked about earlier this year in late October. <laughs> All right. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and the listeners today. To start, do you mind just sharing who you are, what you do, and what your place is in education? Thank you for having me. I'm pretty excited to be here. I am Adrian Barber. I'm a second grade teacher in the Bay Area in California. That's uh, San Jose near San Francisco. And I've been teaching for 21 years, uh, only first and second, because I love that age very, very much. And my students come from all over the world. Um, I have 24 each year, and they come from, you know, between 10 and 17 different countries, languages. So it's a beautifully diverse school. And um, I'm a teacher, and I'm a new author illustrator as well. Yeah, so you sent me a copy of your new book in both English and French. Thank you very much for that. Um, maybe you can just talk a little bit about that project that you started. So in the spring, when we went to distant learning uh, in March, I just I had this uh, need to make it okay for my kids. Uh, I don't I don't I didn't know what I was going to do to make things okay, but this sort of maternal need to make it okay, uh, the big changes that we were going through just led me to really spend some time and try to write a book that would comfort young children with the, the changes and to make it silly. So I enrolled in some classes for art and writing and um, got a peer group and uh, wrote a book and self-published this summer. And then my families helped me translate it into now eight languages. So uh, they became involved too, the families of my students. And so that's been really exciting. The book's been shared in Malaysia, in Europe, in Australia, and it's making kids that aren't even my own students feel a, li a little bit better about what's going on right now. As a high school teacher, I have a sense, especially in talking to colleagues, about how 
teenagers are coping. Obviously, there's no one universal experience. But how do you find that the younger students are dealing with this disruption? Um, I would say that they're they're different from high schoolers because high schoolers uh, crave a certain kind of social interaction. Um, but young children are having a hard time too because young children need to express themselves rather physically, boisterously, you know, and and leap onto each other and run in parks. And so I think the message to them is a lot of no, you know, or danger. Don't do that. And because they're little, they don't understand why so many no's. Teenagers have a different thing. They know what they're missing out on more, I would I would say. And so it, it's hard for them too. But my students, I mean, I'm not I'm just going to be Susie Sunshine, but my students are getting a lot of wonderful things too, even while we do it this hard way. And there's a lot of joy in my classroom and talking, and even online. I interviewed um, Scott Mock about homeschool partnerships. And he really wanted to draw attention as well to the fact that while there is some deficit happening, there's also some really new, interesting learning opportunities that that have been happening as well. Like kids are getting a chance to learn and explore in a new way that the traditional school system hasn't always allowed them to do. I totally agree. And I'm having guests in my classroom that I had never had before, you know, international authors, a Bollywood musician. And then this Friday, a history museum is going to come to my class on Zoom and teach us history's mysteries. We went to the Smithsonian on a pretend field trip, things I I just never did in real life. That's what I call the old life. (laughs) And And I've been very, I've always done theater and very like active kind of learning with my students, but it's, it's making me think, how can I bring new things to them this way? My classroom's definitely happy. Well, that's the most important thing, really. <laughs> what would you say your path to teaching is? How did you, how do you find yourself now in this happy elementary school classroom? Um, so I started teaching probably the day I was born. That's what my mother said. <laughs> and I lived in, in Europe for a while. And so when I was there, I would try to help my family and teach them German. I spoke German, but they didn't. And so I guess it just sort of naturally started there when I was a kid. Um, And then I was always put in those positions in the classroom of being the tutor or helper or whatever. But for a long, long, long time, I said I was going to write a book and not be a teacher. I denied it. And then I became a teacher for 21 years before writing a book. It just, it just sort of was my destiny, I think. And my husband's a musician and has a day job. And I always say that mine is like this perfect, uh, my passion and my joy is my job as well. And he has two, you know, he has a job and a joy. And mine is all kind of one thing. So in your 21 years of experience, what have been some of your favorite lessons or units to teach and why? So my very favorite things uh, is, is connecting with families. I'm, I'm not shy about that. They come to my house. I go to their house. I, I love the people part of teaching. And so some of my very favorite have been I host film festivals in my classroom I host parent events uh, regularly, and even online, I'm doing that. 
I, I just enjoy any way that I can get to know the child and the whole family better. So my most successful lessons would probably involve everybody. I'd like to explore how you do that. I guess my first question would be, why do you think it's so important to have those connections? Because I I can hear the cynical teacher in the back of my head being like, well, you know, being a teacher for these 24 kids is hard enough. And now you're involving more people and more time. So why do you think that this is where your energy should be devoted? Well, for one thing, I can kind of, once I have a relationship, get the parents to, uh, follow what I ask, you know, they buy into what I'm presenting as a program or as a studies. We don't have an adversarial relationship. We're friends. We become friends. So they sort of take my advice, I think rather easily, but I don't think that having parties with families or having them to your house is as everybody's bag. It's just one of those things. If that's what, what you're good at or what, makes you and your classroom happy, um, then you should do it. And different people have different things. Some people are very theatrical and they can do theater things. And some people are hyper-organized and that's where they shine. Mine is just relationships. And the connection is the most important, making the parent, and my parents speak other languages. So some of them feel very, they have a, a big lack of confidence with speaking English in the beginning. It happens every year. They'll be like, no, I can't come to this event because I don't know how to speak English. But once I have an event that is not language-based, you know, we'll make an ornament together or build STEM creations out of straws and tape that doesn't involve, they're a little bit scared of the school, you know, that I'm going to test them. The school is going to test them and they're going to be wrong. So after I do something non-academic, they'll, they're braver with me. Yeah, that's something that I think about when we talk about parental involvement, because there's so much trauma for parents sometimes when it comes to entering the school building, whether from a different country or even, you know, indigenous people and their trauma around cultural genocide through the school or other Americans who have been, who have systematically been discriminated against in the school system. And so them even coming into the building can sometimes be like a very emotional and it sounds like in a positive way, a healing thing to do. Right. And then sometimes they see me as their teacher or they'll tell me that anyway, you're my teacher. And so that for me is just like one of the best feelings. Um, But yes, I see it too. And, and mine are coming from, places where sometimes education is more dogmatic. It may not even be a trauma from America. It's that in some of their schools, they were told to just, you know, be silent and do drills. And so my way of being welcoming is, is very new for them. And so how do you then transform that family connection in the classroom? Like, are you finding ways to incorporate what you learn from those parents into the class? Absolutely. Like we just had, there's a moon festival that just happened. So my students were celebrating with me and showing off their things from their home. Um, So yes, I incorporate like who they are. Um, And I had a a big increase in Indian uh, from India families 
So then I had to do a ton of reading and figure out like what, you know, I figured out there's a ton of different languages and cultures in India. And a lot of people in India speak English to each other. So in the past few years, every time there's a sort of transformation in who's coming into my classroom, I have to learn and figure things out, ask questions. You um, mentioned earlier that you involve a lot of gamification elements into your classroom. Uh, Can you maybe expand a little bit more on that? Yes. So in my real life classroom, every day I, I make silly games like old fashioned game show kind of games. And uh, I'll have teams that um, we do, we're doing math, let's say on their little boards. And I have teams in it, it. Each team has to all answer the question. It's just about math practice, right? Instead of sitting in rows, like in the old times, they're sitting on the floor and then a spokesperson from their team gets to golf or throw a funny stuffed animal across the room or whatever for points. And it tricks my students into doing a ton of practice without ever really realizing it. The clever ones get it pretty quickly. Like, Hey, (laughs) we're doing a lot of spelling right now or math or writing sentences. Then it, it, you know, increases their attention. I don't have to, nag them to pay attention because there's sort of this uh, great team spirit that's like, come on, we can all answer these questions. Um, So I use things like that that are like physical games. So online, it's become a big push for my own creativity to replicate that on Zoom. But I play a game right now where, you know, I hold up flashcards and when an alligator is on one of the flashcards, then I, I yell, alligator, alligator, run, run. And they have to run to the other side of the room and get a Lego because they shouldn't just be sitting and staring at a screen. So I'm trying to make up games that involve their physical movement now and excitement. And every day they're excited for whatever game I've made up. That's usually very silly. You've been teaching, you said, for 21 years. What's changed from the first part of your teaching career to now? Like what's changed and what's stayed the same? So what has stayed the same is my instructional budgets. <laughs> <laughs> it, has, it has stayed the same at $1 per child per month for 21 years. But um, so I, that's my snarky answer. But what, what has changed is technology. I mean, whoa, I didn't have a computer for myself when I started and there was no such thing as like a whiteboard projector. And I have, I like old technology too. I have a record player and, and funny things like that. But um, the technology has just changed so quickly. And now the children in my class, thanks to donors choose have one-to-one technology. Um, And I'm working on getting iPads. But what's the same is their their children, their development's the same, their attention spans are the same. Even if people get older and say, "Oh, these children can't pay attention," I don't I don't believe that. I don't see it. I think you know they're motivated by points and avatars and games, and so you just have to figure out a way to remember that. And has your instructional practice changed at all, or do you find yourself teaching? similar units in the same way? Well, uh, so some of those things have changed. I mean, I've gone through a whole lot of different adoptions of programs. And so when I started, there was no common core. And I would say things were a lot 
simpler and developmentally more appropriate. So I'm still toggling the line of how much common core can I finish and still make learning joyful and appropriate for little children. Yeah. That that's a big a big shift. But I mean my focus is on language, on the joy of learning, on like wanting to come to school and that feeling. So that's been there since day one. Is do you have a particular memory of either something academic or not academic that sticks out for you in your career? Oh my goodness. Well, this March 13th was something huge. It was <laughs> one hour to pack up your your life and and shift how you're doing things. That was the biggest thing ever. Really. And have have you found the transition to online learning? I mean, there's no one for whom this is easy. But how have you found the transition? Well, um, I, I, I launched in, in March with Zoom and tried to learn it and spent 24 hours a day for a little while. Um, so actually, this fall was a little bit um, easier in a way because I practiced every day in, in the spring when we didn't really need to practice. So I tried with a class that I'd already known for two years I could make mistakes with and figure out mute buttons and all that kind of stuff. But it is hard. I teach live for two hours and those two hours are more exhausting than the six live I did in real life. And I, I'm not just saying that it's like a children's television show production all by me every day. And then the kids are also expected to do supplemental work outside of the hour. They are. And trying to keep it routine and important, yet fun, and yet not drive their parents crazy. <laughs> I am curious how you go about your lesson planning. Some of it for me is like riding a bike, I have to say. I, I, there's some things that just after all these years, I, I kind of know how long things take. I can gauge children pretty fast, Um, but I do wake up in the morning and think, what one thing can I do today that is new and exciting and engaging? So my lesson plans go, I do the whole week, the week before, um, because I now have to tell parents what to do for every chunk of time all day. So I have to be organized way in it. I've never had to tell parents, hey, this is what we do at 115. You know, they don't, need to know they're at work. But now that we're online, I have to tell them eight to two what to do. Um, and then for my own planning, I'm a note, I'm like a list maker. So I just jot down my list and have my materials ready. And when you're looking for that one thing to add a little bit of spice to your lesson, what, where are the places that you look for inspiration? Is it social media or blogs or just your own personal toolkit? All those things. And travel, I love to travel. So, and I love museums. So my ideas will come from music and people and places and, and my kids, like I made a lantern with my kids and last week. And then all these families were sending me pictures. They love lanterns. So then I had to go look for more paper crafts. Really. I had no idea that they were going to be. So we did another paper craft today and they were like, Oh my gosh, 
you can fold paper. <laughs> that, like what revs up a class. And sometimes it's what revs up a, a child who's sort of this natural leader or magnet of positivity. One boy in my class um, really, really, really needed to tell me everything about space every day. So I made a time last Friday where he was our special guest and he taught um, the children all about uh, the black holes and all kinds of things. So the inspiration can come from lots of places, I guess. That's adorable. A little professor. He is. He's great. He wants to know when we can have follow-up questions. That was his question today. <laughs> so if you're working with students for two hours, like you're doing things to keep them moving, but like developmentally, how much can a first or second grader get out of that? Oh, a ton. I mean, really a ton. Um, my math progress so far, like I do things in a very silly, funny, happy way. But then at the end, I do believe that you have to have like a concrete assessment of whether they know ones, tens and hundreds. And my students are doing better than in many of the years I've had them in real life with the same math units. And this class came in um, scoring my historically lowest so far in 21 years. And they all, 22 out of 24, passed the unit one test. But about six of them looked like they would, if you know what I mean. So they're gaining academic things. It's just extra hard work. At school, they could turn to each other. I could say, oh, look, you know, uh, Aviva really figured out number 13, that three-step problem. Anybody want to go to the round table with Aviva and figure it out together? Online is very different. It's, you know, I, even in a breakout room, it's hard to recreate that. That makes me really happy to hear because I know that I'm currently doing my master's and it's, it's online and I find myself getting academically fatigued. And so I was thinking like how much are even little kids getting out of this, but you're right. Like if you're chunking it and putting it together in a way where you're switching gears and taking time to be physically active, you can really have solid lessons that are going to provide foundations for future learning. Right. And I'm, I've never, nothing's more than 10 minutes. So in every hour, there's all these shifts and transitions that um, it's hard to describe how how it happens, but it might be some songs with some exercise, and then I read a story, and then they go, and I make them get things a lot. You know, one of the parents was like, why don't you just, like, let them have all their things on their table? And I said, because <laughs> they need to get up and go over there and get something because they're seven. And I do a lot of, during my lesson time, I said five-minute little timer and say, okay, we're going to see how many words we can write. So they stop looking at the screen. I do breaks like that to make their eyes go down and their brain take a break. That's awesome. Do you have any other tips of, of breaking things up or? Um, I send them into breakout rooms and I'll do little contests in class where, like I said, I, you know, five minutes, who can write the most words? Because sometimes, you know, there are children that aren't going to shine anywhere else, but in the writing the most words or making the most gains and whatever, drawing the cutest picture. And you just pick the person who really needs attention. So then I'll say, I'll say, oh, okay, today Aviva gets to pick in the breakout rooms. If we're going to have Play-Doh, 
Legos or show and tell. And I do that every day when I really intended it anyway, to give them a three minute time to talk to peers and show off toys or their pets. And uh, I just bring those in instead of spending my time going, Bueller, Bueller, why? <laughs> I can go the lecture route and the, why isn't anyone listening? Or keep it going. That's why it's exhausting. Yeah. What would you say would be your biggest success when it's come to online learning and your biggest struggle? My biggest success is that we are on, I think, day 38 and I have had a hundred percent attendance in every meeting I've had. Wow. A hundred percent. That's success. they all come to my class and they try and that's crazy. It's crazy. They like it. So the big, and the biggest challenge is my own energy. You know, I woke up with a headache. I'm not allowed to have a headache now in real life school. I can say, okay, boys and girls, Got a headache. <laughs> gonna do some silent reading. <laughs> and it's gonna be extra reading day. And they're like, okay, you know, we've got 180 days. And I don't mean real sickness, I just mean not peppy day. I have to be peppy every day. So currently that's my challenge. And money. This is a very expensive shift from a pocketbook. And I'm imagining you're not getting a lot of support with that $1 a student. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm working hard. So I write for grants and I do donors choose and I um, bought all the supplies for my students' families so they didn't have to go to Target or Walmart this year. I've never done that before because I just, we're in a really high COVID area and I didn't want to start the year with, here's a list, go to the store now you know, now trust me, <laughs> I'm going to take care of you and your children. Um, so that was huge, but my whole family helped me make those bags. And um, so the stuff of it all is hard, but I'm really lucky. I've funded three donors choose this year already. And that, that gives me supplies for my kids. Yeah. It's, I interviewed the person that started the um the like supported teacher movement and I always find it where on one hand I'm just like amazed and humbled by how much giving there is out there and then I'm also on the other hand just so enraged that we need that to begin with yeah me too I and Courtney's my friend as well and so I am right there too. I'll, I'll resent that I have to beg for paper and pencils, but then the next minute I'm like, well, what else am I going to do except beg for paper and pencils or get clever about it or work all night, one night on a thing to get my kids what they need. I don't know either. Are there apps on the students ends for their learning that like, do you ever assign apps or online things for them to do during their independent work? Or are you keeping them off of screens completely during that time? Yeah, I'm doing I'm doing both. Uh, I like Khan Academy in small chunks. I think it's very concrete and very good. Um, it's good for my families, too, because it's not too wordy um, with explaining math. So that one I do. And then I take a break and do fun ones called Prodigy Game and Sumdog. 
they're, they're more fun. Um, and so, yes, I'm doing about half the time, more than half the time is paper learning, but also they're doing some apps and something called Seesaw, which is a cute place where they can, they turn in their work. Okay. So that's the regular thing, but there's a blog where they share with each other. And mine is a show and tell blog. So I have a student who was scientist of the day and every day she does an experiment just for fun or they show off their gardens or their pets and it's um, private. So only my class can see it. That sounds really cute. It is really, it's so cute. It is so cute what they, they're like, I'm cooking pancakes with my mommy. (laughs) And they make a little video. (laughs) They're YouTube stars. They think they're like doing a show. I guess they are. They're doing a little. (laughs) And you mentioned before about like, if you have a headache, but what happens if you are legitimately sick where you aren't able to do the class that day, are there substitute teachers for Zoom? I think you've been following me around because all these questions are things that have recently happened. So I recently had to leave and have dental work and um, it was a nightmare. It was very difficult. I, I thought guidance on what do we do? How do I write this down with zoom cartoon that I'm performing every day. And uh, people in the district who don't teach little children were like, it's no problem. It's just like, it always was. You just write a lesson plan. So I had them come observe me. Um, And uh, the lady was like, I'm exhausted. You can't write that down. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So even if we can secure someone to cover my zoom, how do I tell them to do, and this is not vain. This is just like, technically, how do you tell someone to do the things? How do you give them the materials that you use to teach the children during COVID? Um, so I spend hours writing um, a, a Zoom anytime plan. And then I started selling it on teachers, paid teachers. And strangely enough, people keep buying it um, because we all are like, I don't know what do we do? Um, but I had a sub and she was great. Um, and I spent two hours writing her two hours worth of plans, (laughs) but there is a shortage and, and it's stressing them out as well. Is there anything that you think when things do go back to normal that you're going to incorporate back into your class that you've learned from the online experience? Well, sure. So this makes us try all these new adaptive programs and figure out which ones are engaging to children, which ones are informationally important to a teacher. So I've tried some new websites that I've never tried before. One called eSpark that's giving me great information and is using a lot of fun things. Like I love YouTube and YouTube playlists. So eSpark is also incorporating some of the things that have been my favorite for years. So some adaptive stuff, practice that's new, although I did some of that before, but, um, and Kahoot. I mean, even in real life, I think they'll love Kahoot. I mean, you talk about it being exhausting. Just being an elementary school teacher is exhausting. I know. How do you make sure that you don't burn out? That is the question of the day, isn't it though? I think every teacher that I know, and these are people who are, I admire so much from around the country. I know teachers 
every teacher either looked at when they're going to be able to retire or said the word quit or burnout or anxiety attack in the past couple months, every teacher. Uh, so I'm keenly aware that we're all on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And so I go to the beach um, once a week or every other week and I don't work um, for a few hours. And then my favorite question to ask is if I were to give you unlimited funds, unlimited time, unlimited control, what would be your ideal, and I'm going to change this for this episode, ideal online classroom or school? Mm. Well, you would be there for sure. Oh, you're so sweet. <laughs> oh, you're, you're, you're a good listener and you're funny. So that means you're a good teacher. I just really believe in the arts and creativity and there's just not enough a chance for that. You know, I want them to know the ones, tens and hundreds and how to read from left to right and put periods on sentences. But my school doesn't have specials. Um, that's what they call it in some places or extracurriculars. And so if I had a school, um, we'd have art and we'd have music and theater and dancing and people who were excellent at teaching those things. Um, instead of the one woman show that I'm always attempting to be and families would not like, it wouldn't be, I want you to be on this committee, you know, not committees all over the place, but like welcoming to the presence of families. That would be important in my school. And do you think that the online does facilitate a little bit more family involvement because you don't have to make time to step into a school and they've already seen you in action? <laughs> I think so. And I think it is like absolutely the coolest part of online learning is I see how my, my kids live and um, they bring their little brothers to story time and their pets and their grandpa. And, and I, I have grandparents watching me every day. I think it's like the coolest thing, but I've seen a lot of pushback from educators around the country. Like, why is this parent answering this question for their kid or brushing their kid's hair during my zoom and, I think that's quite silly, actually. I love it. <laughs> I think it's it's part of the whole thing. I'm invading their house. They're in my house. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing your primary Zoom practice. And I hope the rest of the year goes by with as much fun and silliness as the first little bit has. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Have a good night. This episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform. More details about this episode, links to resources or people we mentioned, and information in general about the podcast and its mission can be found at lessonimpossible.com. If you enjoy the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing on iTunes, forwarding it to a colleague, or posting a link in your favorite educational chat. This has been Less Than Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.